Hi, I'm Kelly Shan and this is my podcast, Life Journey. I hope you find some inspiration and happiness for your own life in the words and experience from my guests. The ANZ Bank is a major supporter of regional Queensland and focuses on doing the things that really add value for their customers. From having the right people who listen to putting the best tools into their customers' hands through educational programs like Saver Plus, Money Minded and the Financial Wellbeing Challenge. ANZ truly has its clients' best interests at heart. When I chatted with David Hanlon from The Right Mind last year, he mentioned to me that he got to do the relatively easy things and his partner, Jill Remy, took on all the hard tasks. I thought I should find out straight from Jill, so we caught up to talk about many things from the importance of managing your emotions to looking after your finances in order to create a lasting legacy for families. I'd sincerely like to thank the ANZ Bank for their support in bringing this video to you. Hello, Jill, and thank you so much for joining me. I remember from my interview when I spoke with David last year, he said, I get all the easy stuff through the right mind and Jill gets the hard stuff. So now I'm, I want the hardcore stuff today, Jill. I want to find out all about what you do at the right mind. Well, one, a delight to, uh, to actually be talking to you, Kelly. Um, I've enjoyed all the pieces that you've done with people out there. So it's a bit of a privilege on my behalf. Um, yeah, the hard stuff, I don't know. I just like to work with humans and they have a tendency to be a bit messy along the way. So, yes, uh, David's right in the sense that's sort of where I've ended up doing most of my work. Yeah. No, well, I'm looking forward to um, picking your brain anyway. Um, Jill, like these days, there's such uh, an emphasis on our mind health. Um, what are some of the things that, you know, practical things that we can do when we are feeling a bit down to get ourselves into a better emotional state? It's a really good question. It's a really big question, as you can imagine, Kelly, and everyone takes a different way of doing it. So from my perspective, um, I focus in this area because to be really, really high-functioning businesses, we need to have high well-being, and our mental state is the basis of that. Um, when we're not in the best state, there is no way we can make good decisions. So for me, I often recommend to people, the first one is, is to, you have to acknowledge that it's not the right state. And I don't think we do that well. Um, I think we have a habit of what I call getting caught in emotions as opposed to the capacity to move through emotions. And sometimes just by telling people that, they go, you're right, it's my job to move through that emotion if it's not serving the best purpose to get an outcome or to work with this person or, or these people. Um, two really simple throwaways, and I really don't like giving recipes to, to people, but it is a but. Um, two of the ways that I recommend is a really simple one, and that is, is breathing. Believe it or not, when we're in high emotive states, we don't breathe. And if people... All they did was actually go, I need to find a place that I can breathe and breathe quite deeply. I can get access to my thoughts again and make some choices. The single biggest one is, is our physiology. Um, when we're in an emotional state, our physiology is quite specific. We hold our emotions within our muscles, you know, whether we're angry, we're sad, we're excited for that matter. We will have some quite specific physiology. And if we take that physiology away, then quite often we're able to re alleviate um, those emotions. So movement, um, from a mood point of view, exercise, 
let's go to well-being. Exercise at the end of the day has a capacity to override so many emotive states that we fall into. And I do have a throwaway line, and that is I challenge people that on a daily basis, what if we designed our day around our goals and our important tasks instead of our moods? Would we actually go about our day in a completely different way? Um, and I think we would. Um, and I'm, I'm excluding the fact that sometimes we need external support for our emotional states, but they're our internal ones um, that I focus on. Mm. It's um, actually amazing how much uh, more control we have our, over our thoughts and feelings than we think we have, isn't it? It is. I, I We're actually remarkably indulgent in our motive states. We sort of like them, as in if someone hurts us or makes us angry, we have this desire to go, I deserve to be angry. Um, and yet it may do us a complete disservice for what we're trying to achieve with that group of people or with that person. And so um, we use the phrase, do you have the capacity to flick the switch? Um, and that is, is to acknowledge you, there was a genuine hurt, which can happen, and then it's the ability to flick the switch and go, for the moment, it's not going to serve my purpose to play that out, given what I want to do with them. You can go back to being hurt afterwards if it's uh, that attractive to you. But I'm going, I challenge people that more often than not, if they choose to shift their emotions, they have an amazing capacity to. Um, there's wonderful work done by a guy called Joshua Friedman who called a company six seconds. And the reason he called it six seconds was an emotion, the physical data that we have that, that goes on inside us actually only lasts for around about six or 10 seconds. And that's a real emotion which we can't control. And then we convert it into a feeling of being hurt or being angry. And then it can move on to a mood. And we actually do have control over the last two. Um, the feeling or the mood, depending on our experiences. I mm, know, mm, mm. oh, I know, it can be hard to get control of those, those moods sometimes, but it, it is certainly possible. Um, Jill, I've not on um, the radio. I guess I've heard it, but there's an ad um, for Beyond Blue, and they talk about how having control of our finances can really help our mental state. So, what's your take on that? I couldn't agree more. It's There are a number of what I call shadows or weights, you know, it's a weight on us that we walk with. And finance is absolutely one of them. Um, and I think one of the reasons it weights on us so much is because our sense of security, um, you know, whether as what I can provide for my family or I can make the business do to provide for, for a family, uh, weighs really, really heavy. So it's a sense of responsibility that if we have our finances in a good place um, and we feel a sense of control uh, about what it is and where that's headed, then uh, there's no doubt that it plays a significant role in how people feel about themselves and their capacity to actually make good decisions. I do worry at times that when we walk with that weight, um, our decision-making capacity has to be impacted and can be diminished. Mm. And yeah, just when we need to make a really good financial decision, um, we haven't got ourselves in a place to be able to do that. And it's one of the reasons I suggest that we need to have a good team of uh, professionals around us to assist. So that's whether it's a consultant, a banker, uh, an accountant, whoever, to make sure that we do make those best decisions um, when required and, and timely. When we're in emotive states, we often make decisions too fast or we don't make them at all. And that's not great for business management. Mm. Um, 
Jill, I guess communication with those professional people that we have in our lives, um, our bankers and our accountants, so communication would be paramount. But, like, do you think some people are just, they, they're, They'd almost they operate on a little bit of fear. They're too scared to um, make some decisions uh, about their financial future. So, so they they kind of fly by the seat of their pants a bit. I, do you agree? And instead of um, engaging with somebody in a professional uh, manner um, that can you know really assist them to absolutely. I, I think there's a lot of a couple of reasons behind it. I think one is is there can be a whole pride and ego about asking for help um, across many areas. And, and to go and see a banker or to see an accountant or to see a solicitor that sometimes, yeah, they don't feel they have that confidence and, you know, it's, it's a bit of a pride ego thing. So I think that's one thing that I challenge people to get past. I mean, there's things you can do for that. The one that... Um, I think one of the reasons they don't also go and get professional help is they actually don't know where they're headed. So they're caught up in what I call, um, yeah, there's a, the best way I can term it is we regularly get activity confused with achievement. And so we can get really caught up in doing lots of very good things on a day-to-day basis operationally and make cash, which gets us through. However, in relation to achieving what we want in the long term, where are we headed? you know, into the future um, isn't always clear. And when we're not clear or we haven't had those conversations, then we're going to make quite short-term decisions regularly. And, you know, if you go to a professional, I think sometimes we fear that they'll go, so where do you want to be in 10 years' time or 20 years' time? And they can't see touch, see that in some form. And um, so, therefore, they just block it out and don't engage and, they mean to get to it and we might do that later this year or we need to do that next year. And um, the months and the years do pass until it becomes what I'll call a critical point. Mm. Um, it seems easier to ask for help when we're in a crisis sometimes. It doesn't seem um, as, as bad for some people. So, yes, I, I agree that there is a fear factor at times and a trust. Can I put that into trust? I think there can be a real trust issue out there. Um, I don't know who's good. I don't know whether they'll have my interest at heart. And part of that is because they haven't got the relationships in place. You know, we need to develop relationships and communicate with professionals to work out who I can trust and how I can trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a big part of it. Mm. And, and there are there's a lot of tools out there these days around educating yourself about finances, from books to courses that you can do. And um, to me, I, I, I kind of think that's a big thing, isn't it? educating yourself and working with those people that can help you? I'm a little biased when it comes to education, um, Kelly, as you can imagine, it's <laughs> I do. Um, I do it because I don't know how to get something more, something better um, if I don't go through an education process. And so, yeah, I'm at the extreme end of I will chase um, knowing things. From a business point of view, that we have an endless list of resources available. And people go, but which one? I go, well, I think you've got to do your research. And then I think you've just got to put your foot in and decide, did that work for me or it didn't? And you will hit some dry galleys. Not every consultant 
or every professional will work perfectly the first time around? And the answer is it's not because it's wrong. It's because maybe it was the wrong person. Maybe I didn't, wasn't seeking the right things they had. Um, but I don't know how you do advancement in an incredibly fast-moving world. This, uh, the speed that business is evolving at and finance is evolving at, it's not going to slow down. Um, we need to pursue it. Um, as almost a priority, I think, um, mm. business into the long, yeah, just for the longevity of businesses. Mm. Um, talking about the longevity of business, tell me about like multi-generation, multi-generational businesses and how um, those people that are in control of those can create, uh, I guess, a lasting legacy for their families. Oh, that's just a really small subject, Kelly, uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and easy, easy. <laughs> no problems. <laughs> no problems. We'll, we'll tidy that up whilst we're here. Um, I, it has to be designed. My, my overriding comment is, is as a business or as a family business, you need to decide that you want it to have longevity or you want it to have a legacy longer than yourself. And it has to be a decision. And then you go, how might we design that? Um, and to start building a picture of what it's possible to be in 10 years, 20 years or 30 years' time, I think you've got to start building that. So my, my biggest comment is, is you need to build a picture um, of where you're headed, you know, and that just and, and it's not a unilateral thing. I think you've got to sit down with the stakeholders involved and go, what is that? So that's the single biggest one, design it. And then you've got to put in a series of milestones um, because when there's multi-generational, people are going to be, their age groups will be shifting during that time. What are the major milestones is, do we have people coming to, of age um, that should be involved in the business in the next three years? Or um, do we have people that might be needing to exit the business in the next 10 years? So where are the milestones where big decisions would need to be made? and to make them in advance. Um, that's the really big one. The other one is, is you can't, and I'm being really black and white in this, I don't believe you can do good multi-generation in the absence of a high-functioning family. I just don't. You, you might, you'll get through it. However, it'll be gritty. And as I say, we run the, you run the risk of putting blood on the floor. Um, if it's not a well-functioning family. And so, yeah, I'm going to go in is, is ask your question, does our family communicate and relate at a high enough level to have some pretty significant, difficult conversations about the future? Um, and can we share our concerns? Is it safe enough in that family to share my concerns and my desires and my needs for the future without it being shot down or invalidated in some ways? And I, and I think that really comes down to the family dynamics and, that's not something families commonly go, oh, how are our family dynamics? Is it good? Is it good enough? And um, I don't think that happens a lot. So that's a big one. If a family can do that, mm. then do I think the next chance to discover what's needed to go forward. Yeah, I'm wondering if, um, I mean, communication and understanding to me must be paramount, but if, if there are problems, do you need to lay the groundwork to try to relieve those problems or, and, and make, it, you know, make it better for those or help them to understand one another before you go, they go down that track of succession planning? I would highly recommend it. 
Yeah. Um, so underlying um, issues within a family that sit there, and by the way, families can sit with them for a long time and they exist okay. However, mm-hmm. to go through that decision-making prog- process of what will we be in the future, um, those uh, unaddressed issues are very, very likely to come to the surface and they'll probably come to the surface in a highly emotive uh, way that it potentially then causes so much damage between relationships it can be quite hard to come back from. And so, yes, I would recommend, and that's where I spend my most of my world is, is about getting families or people to being a high-functioning state so mm. that they are in the position to mm. have those deeper conversations. And, and I think we have to work at that. It's not something, it's not an event. Mm. Um, we have to work at being really good communicators in families. So, yeah. Yeah, the best work I get to do are the families that are actually doing really good stuff. And I just get employed once a year to come and run a meeting and there's nothing Mm. wrong. We Mm. simply look at going, yeah, can we do it any better? And so when the big decisions turn up, they can make them and and feel safe in making them. You you just conjured up an image for me of you being a firefighter and putting out fires along the way. (laughs) It is a lot of what I have done over the years and, um, yeah, continue to do at some level. Um, I My greatest desire is to work with people and families uh, where required to give them the skills that they do not have to employ my skills at that end. So, yes, I do work in that area of negotiation and conflict and, and so forth and um, I clearly always charge a bigger fee for sorting out the mess than I do to trying to give the skills to not end up in the mess. And, um, yeah, I yeah. love it if people went, I need to learn to communicate at a, at, at a higher level to do business really well into the future. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jill, there were a couple of things that I specifically wanted to ask you um, in those, well, the first one certainly relates to the planning stage. Fair doesn't always mean equal, does it? So, so what... How do you get around that and what do you mean by that? It's one of the more common things that turn up, particularly when things haven't been going well. So um, they have already been trying to sort it out and divide it. And the most common one is is they turn up to me going, you know, we think we've got a great plan and we'll divide this and do that. And then someone goes, but that's not, you know, someone's getting more than me. You know, it's not equal is what they're chasing. And, Particularly in agriculture, it is extremely difficult by the lumpiness of the assets involved to do equal. I do believe we can do fair and reasonable, um, and I think we, there always has to be give and take in that process. On average, if you really want to stick with doing equal, I think the only way around that is to liquidate the assets and divide the cash. And that's not all, you know, commonly that is not the desired um, outcome or intention and so I do believe that's a yeah how do you go about it I think there's a lot of yeah recognizing the contributions that might get made and how that might be rewarded in addition to just dividing of assets mm-hmm. um, who stays and works for a lesser salary and who goes and gets an education and how might we weigh that up um, and there's no one way of doing it I say it's the time we get really creative and then we get generous. Mm-hmm. Um, Jill, another specific thing I wanted to ask you that I, I um, we were talking about, just because you believe it, 
doesn't mean it's true. So could you just explain that phrase? <laughs> oh, um, if, um, if everybody understood that statement, then we wouldn't have any political battles and we wouldn't have yeah, religious orders uh, not liking other religious orders. <laughs> so it is a big statement. Um, people will, when they end up in conflict, they often come in and take a really, really strong position on something and they will argue for it. Uh, quite often illogical, and there isn't the evidence behind why they hold it, but they actually believe it and they make it a truth. And so I always say to people, just because you are holding on to something, please don't think there's a truth to it. Your job is to go, what is it about why somebody else holds a different belief on it? And so I challenge them to get curious, to get, in the side of, get inside the world of someone else's belief. You know, um, and I see it between fathers and sons and fathers and daughters and all of those things and family members. Um, and quite, it's just, it's not a belief. It's just a strong opinion. And uh, why don't we get curious about what forms those opinions and you'll realise um, there are multiple truths. Um, I often, there's a wonderful Chinese proverb that used to go around and it was, um, there are three truths. There's your truth, there's my truth, and somewhere out there, there is a the truth. Which one would we like to work with? I always think everybody has their truth and they can be looking at exactly the same thing and their truth is is different to, you know, some their partner's truth or their mother's truth or father's truth, like you said. Um, and it's kind of trying to see someone, uh, you know, the point of view from somebody else's perspective, I guess, and I'll often say um, to get past it because it's a terribly difficult thing to get past once you've taken a position on something. And quite often it can be that I'm, I'm prepared to accept your truth, you know, as you hold it on, I'm prepared to accept your belief. And then we need to ask the question, we may have a difference, but if we want to do business together or do something together in the future, what do we need to change? What would we need to agree on? So I take it further out then, because if you end up just arguing um, between your two truths, then um, you're guaranteed to have high conflict. So we've got to go, so yes, we agree to be different, but what is it we're trying to achieve um, out here? And quite often that allows us to go forward. Mm -hmm. um, another statement was that I wanted to ask you about was about... Um, relationships and being responsible to relationships, not responsible for relationships. So what does that mean? Yeah, it's a wonderful phrase. Um, and I, I actually wish I could remember who gave it to me I, um, because it's one that, I, that stuck with me. When it comes to conflict and particularly within families, I quite often find that one or more members of the family are trying to make it right trying to keep the peace between two people. And what we do is, is we often get in the middle of that and we try to make their relationship right. Um, and in actual fact, we should step back and go, I'll be responsible to their relationship and I will help them be strong in having a conversation and resolving it, but I won't get in the middle of it and become party to it, um, which creates this awful triangulation. And it's not possible to resolve something when there's a what I'll call three-party argument um, or debate going on. It has to get back to the two parties that have directly got issue and the third party must play what I'll call a 
a responsible role of assisting the two of them to get through as opposed to getting in the middle and messing it up. So how can I be responsible to you without being responsible uh, for you or for your decisions for that matter? Mm-hmm. And I guess... Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I guess emotionally for um, the person who's feeling responsible, that kind of lets you, lets you off the hook a little bit too, doesn't it? Because you're not... Um, if you can change your mindset that you're not responsible for that person's actions or that person's thoughts, but as you said, you can help them, that must be... It stops people becoming what I call the rescuer, Um, someone who's constantly rescuing people, which is lovely. The intention is beautiful. However, it stops there being a resolution. Um, So how it, it helps somebody get... Do that. So I'm sure you'd be able to relate to the experience where someone has offloaded to you about what somebody else has done and what they should have done and and all of that. And that person goes away. And interestingly, they often feel a lot better because they've offloaded it to you. And then you sit here and go, oh, my God, what am I going to do with that? Mm. And so you take on that weight and think you have to resolve it or do something with it. Um, And yet you haven't actually been asked to. Um, and it's quite interesting that we, we do that and we take that burden on when it's not what's been asked of us. And mm. it's quite, uh, counterproductive to mm. relationships building, sound relationships building. Mm. Mm. And I, I think it's probably a natural thing to do, isn't it, to feel that responsibility um, for somebody. So I guess it, that gets back to managing your thoughts then and being in control of how how you feel about something and I guess um, that comes from being aware that that you don't have to feel that responsibility. And this the skill that this is actually a skill that I'm going to talk about the to develop the skill to always separate the issue that's occurring whatever the problem is with the person themselves and I think by doing that, then we can do things like you can love your children and your partner dearly, yet you don't have to accept their behaviour or the actions that they're taking. Um, and we can deal with those that poor behaviour or that inappropriate action that they took, yet we don't dislike the person anymore. We still have deep care for them. And I think that in itself is, a, is something that I challenge people to be able to do before going into sensitive conversations I guess that um you know is that not making it personal you, you've got to try not to make it personal mm. um you know and it is it's um we can seriously um enjoy somebody and like them and yet say that what you just did is completely inappropriate and won't be accepted in this business or accepted in this family and because one of the things we have a tendency to do we tend to denigrate the person and we tend to use language and labels um, more so in families than in the greater world. And I've often said families do things to each other and get away with things that um, is seriously illegal and you can get locked up for it <laughs> in the greater world. And that's a bit of exaggeration, but we do do those things that don't help us to have deep relationships. I also don't want, I, I want families to be safe. They need to be able to compute, communicate in a really safe environment. And that is basically to be respected and to feel really significant um, within it, but let us not confuse a safe environment with comfortable. So it's not, you can actually be highly, dis, have a discomforting conversation, but still in a really safe environment. 
And when I look at high-functioning families and high-functioning family businesses, it is one of the things that they do remarkably well. Yeah, and yeah, like that's exactly what you said, respect and good communication. That's what that really boils down to, isn't it? It is. The, yeah. the three, there are three sort of human needs that we often have, and humans deeply want to be respected by the people that are important to them. Um, they want to feel significant in some way. So if they're inside the business, you know, have we made them, given them a significant role and do they know it? Um, and they want to be relevant. You know, and they're in different forms. That's constantly what we're seeking as humans often when we start going to battle. Um, and what can look like an argument is actually someone, just someone seeking out to be respected or be significant in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Jill, what about from a business perspective, um, growing pains and the evolution of the business? Yes, it's an interesting one because if we're talking about multi-generational and um, the well-being of, um, of that over its longevity um, as a business. And I'll often use the words, how do we do successful generations whilst having business long longevity? And so quite often in the early stages and at different points, the job is is to, to grow a business, you know, it's to create it and grow it. And during that time, we're doing lots of operational stuff. And often the owners are also the operators at the same time. And then as it gets bigger, and there's often less people involved as well, um, as that business grows, we are moving through time and the reality of the world is shifting constantly. And so not only do you have to grow and be agile, you also have to be in connection with what's happening in the, the greater world. You know, do I need to change my system? So the systems that worked at the beginning, which were perfect, may or may no longer be um, appropriate. And do we recognise that we've got to do that shift to be valid going forward? And, you know, then do I have the talent in here to do it? So evolution then starts to look at, do I even have the skill and the talent in this business or in this family? And if not, do I need to buy it in? Do I have the finances or the resources to do that? And maybe I do, maybe I don't, and I have to seek it in a different form. So once we get into evolving in order to exist for um, the future, then I think it brings in, and it's the, often the stage where bringing in external assistance is most required. So often different to what I call a startup point and all the growing pains. Um, evolving, uh, you have to go and seek it because when you needed to evolve, you may not have noticed it um, until it's too late. So it is a, mm. it's, it's staying relevant, keeping the business relevant to the current times. Mm-hmm. And it's like that old saying, getting stuck in your ways, isn't it? And I think we are all guilty of that, you know, in so many ways. Quite often because what's it's working for us right now. Um, you know, those systems are working. It's just that they're not going to be well positioned for what's coming. And we get comfortable and familiar um, and therefore it's not easy to change sometimes mm. uh, when there's no pain or no pain yet, as I say, uh, for the evolution. Jill, I just have one more question for you today. Um, When is the best time to start thinking and start implementing a succession plan for families? Um, Distinctly yesterday is my (laughs) Um, point. There's a lovely analogy um, that I like to use about succession and it's 
like asking someone, you know, would you love to have a, a large tree in the garden? And they'd go, I'd love to have a large tree over there. And then they'll respond with, it's a shame I didn't plant it 20 years ago. And succession is the same thing. Quite often it needs to have started five years, 10 years or, or 20 years ago. Um, however, if you didn't plant the tree 20 years ago, then today is a great time to do it. And the reasoning being is from the day a business starts, um, the transition process um, of succeeding onto another form or another generation is in play. And I would challenge businesses that every single year they have to, even if there's only one or two people in that business, is to ask the question, um, where do we want to be in five years, 10 years and 20 years? And who is it that we might need to um, bring with us? And at what stage can we involve them? Um, and what decisions, what are the milestones of the decisions that we need to start having? And so it does bring up that whole comment of we do need to design it. We do need to have collective conversations. I'll call them meetings, you know, every year um, in and around it in some form, even if it's there's nothing much to be done this year. However, are we on track for what needs to happen in a year's time or the year mm -hmm. after? And when might we bring people in to assist us to do that? Um, and when do we bring children in? What age? Um, it's a very, very good question. Um, yeah, and it does vary. I suggest that they, children are aware that you are always planning for the future so they see it happening. And then there's a milestone when they can be involved and can be, I call it a part of it, but they have no decision-making process. And then there's a time where they mature into and observe how you make decisions. That's how they learn. Um, and there's a point where we, they take on responsibilities. Um, and then there's a time when they may well become part of the decision-making. But it is a, I would challenge businesses to decide um, what that sequence is and what that time frame might want to be um, along the way. And my parting comment on any so-called succession um, is please don't make promises that might not be possible in the future. Mm. <laughs> So it does need to have, um, we don't want people feeling a sense of obligation or being caught within a business. Um, so that's my comment uh, yesterday if possible, and if not, today is a really good starting point. Yeah. And, Jill, I guess, um, you know, especially for people who, who might have younger children and you don't know what your children are going to do in the future, but if you can start planning and be really flexible, I, I think that must be important too. Hmm. It's um, can you design a business and, and have it grow to the level that sh if it's your desire, so the first one is to be clear. Um, there are some people who go, actually, no, I'm building this business for me to create uh, the security, financial security to give my children experiences, but maybe not necessarily have them come back in. For those that do want to provide that opportunity, then, um, yes, I think they have to build, to build it to a point that it has the fluidness and the capacity to have them come in, and if they come in, potentially in order to leave. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of building in that. Yeah, there's a lot, yeah, a lot of design, a lot of building uh, during that time. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, Jill, thank you very much, very, very much. Um, you're, I'm going to picture you in future with your firefighter's outfit on. And <laughs> Uh, However, it's a very good analogy um, and it is the challenge to businesses and family businesses. Uh, yes. Don't ask for help, whether it be at a communications level, a finance level, 
at a business or production level, please go and get help before you can smell the smoke mm. uh, would be my comment. Um, uh, and um, therefore you avoid what I call the deep damages or the missed opportunities. Mm. Um, however, it, it's a delight um, to always have a chat with you, Kelly. And, and you, Jill. And we should catch up again one other day because, honestly, I think you could fill an encyclopedia with your knowledge. It's um, I always love chatting with you. Thank you so much, Jill. Wonderful. And thank you for the opportunity. Take care. Will do. Thanks for listening to my interview. If you'd like to hear more from Life Journey, subscribe to our podcast and we'll let you know when we have new interviews coming up.